Reform theology. Reform theology. Reform theology. Reform reform theology. Whoever's out there, welcome back. Uh, my name is Matt Howell, and we are looking at Reform theology, specifically the five points of Calvinism, which is spelled out in this fun acronym, TULIP. In the last two episodes, we looked at the T in, to- uh, in TULIP, which stands for total depravity, which we basically said means uh, that because sin has corrupted man in his totality, he is unable to take a single step towards God, not because God's restraining him, but because that's what's true of his sinful nature. So this week we're going to look at the U in TULIP, which stands for unconditional election. And as we'll see here in a minute, uh, those words uh, that, you know, I guess the words election, predestination, those words are in the Bible. Those are Bible words, not theology words, which I think is important at least to recognize on the front end, because if you claim to believe in the Bible, you can't say, I don't believe in predestination, because that's a word that's in the Bible. The question is, how do you make sense of that word? How do you make sense of those terms like election and define them? And so we're going to get into it. But before I go on, just let me hear hear me say this on the front end. I know that this subject is challenging and it's hard. It's, it may be counterintuitive and, and counter to whatever you grew up with. I just think it's a big, it's a tough pill to swallow if you're unfamiliar with these theological concepts. I remember the first time I was introduced to these ideas, I I had like a brain hemorrhage. I I recoiled from this idea like I was having an allergic reaction. And so let me just say, if this is your, if that's your reaction, that is okay. This might sound so radically contrary to what you grew up with. And if you disagree with everything that I'm talking about, that's fine. It does not mean that you're not a Christian. So, Let's get into it. What, what is unconditional election? How would I define that? How would we define that? Here's the definition. God from before the foundations of the earth chose those whom he desires for salvation. And he does so not on the basis of any goodness in them, but purely just out of the sheer grace of his will. That's unconditional election in a nutshell. God could have saved everybody because he had the power to do so. He had the authority to do so. He could have saved nobody because he was really under no obligation to show favor to anybody. But he didn't do either. He didn't save all and he didn't save none. He chose to save some. He elected some unconditionally to salvation. And that means that his election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that mankind would do. So let's dive into this under three big bucket headings. Let's look at the reality of unconditional election, the reason of unconditional election, and then the result of unconditional election. So 
the reality, the reason, the result. All right, let's look at the reality of unconditional election, meaning do we, where do we see this in the Bible? Is this actually a reality? Is this a concept that's in the Bible? Well, let's, look at the, let's start with the Old Testament, look at a couple different passages. Let's begin with Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is saying out of all the different people groups and ethnic options out there, God intentionally elects the people of Israel to be his people. He initiates the relationship. He comes to them and says, you are going to be mine. Now notice, it isn't that the people of Israel say, hey, we want Yahweh, the God of the Bible, to be our God. No, it's the, it's the other way around. The God of the Bible comes to them and says, I want you to be my people. Let's look at another one. Deuteronomy 10, verse 14 through 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Now, again, this is another reference to why you um, sometimes hear the people of Israel referred to as the, quote, chosen people. The Old Testament's using this language of God chooses them. Here's another one. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. It's just reinforcing this idea the Lord chooses his people. But okay, you might be thinking, okay, that was with the people of Israel, Matt. That was an ethnic selection. In the Old Testament, God's, God elects this ethnic group. But in the New Testament, it's no longer about, it's not an ethnic thing anymore. It's Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the church doesn't have those kind of racial boundaries. Uh, people of all different races can be included in the people of God. And that's absolutely true. But the thing is, the New Testament talks about the church, the newly constituted people of God, the new Israel, Christians, in the same exact way. Let's look at some passages out of the New Testament. And I'm getting a, I'm getting a special helper for, two special helpers for a couple of these readings. Here is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, first fruits, to be saved 
through sanctification, move by the Spirit, believe in the truth. <laughs> it's amazing. It's good. Good fun there. Um, Paul is looking at believing Christians, and he says to them, God chose you to be saved. All right, let's look at another one. Take it away, Zoe Kate. John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. There you go. Jesus is looking at his followers and he says to them, point blank, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. All right, here's another one. Matthew 22, 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Lots of people are called, lots of people are invited in to believe the gospel and to be saved, but what does it say? Only a few are chosen. But few are chosen. Here's another one from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and verse 11. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then verse 11 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It says God chose those who would be saved before the foundation of the world. This is what the word predestined means. That little prefix pre just means before. He pre-chose those that he wanted. Here is John chapter 6, verse 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So look, it is absolutely true that according to verse 40, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. The question is, who is able to do that? Who is able to look to the Son and believe in him? Verse 37 tells you, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus does not say, all that come to me, the Father will give me. 
No, it's, it's the Father's election of his people, and those are the people that come to Jesus. And if you look at verse 39, he says he will lose none of the elect. So here's another one. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is saying the Father's drawing you to himself. That is the reason why you come to Jesus. Here's another one. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We see again, God foreknows, he predestines, calls, and brings about the complete salvation from start to finish of everyone who is saved. Colossians 3 verse 12 says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, on and on and on. I just want you to see Paul refers to the church as God's chosen ones. And here are some other verses that you can look up later about the same idea. You can look up Matthew eleven twenty seven. You can look up Matthew 24, uh, verses 22, 24, and 31. Luke chapter 18, verse 7, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, lots of different places in the Bible that talk about the church, that talk about Christians as God's chosen ones. In fact, do you know what the Greek word for the word church is the, the Greek word for the word church is ecclesia, where we get words like ecclesiastical and uh, words of that derivation. Uh, it, it means, ecclesia means the called out ones. I mean, the word church literally means to be called out by God, to be elected, chosen. So you see what this is saying. You can't come to God unless God has first already chosen you. This is how he operated in the Old Testament with his people. He chose them. This is how he operates in the New Testament with his people. He chose them. The reality of God's election is this. If you believe in him, it is because he has first chosen you. You wouldn't have been able to believe unless he initiated the relationship. Okay, but that, that raises a giant question. Why does he choose some and not others? 
what's the reason for unconditional election? And so that's the second big idea I want to explore, the reason of unconditional election. And let's talk about what the reason is not first, because there's the Bible's pretty clear on a couple of different things on what the reason is not. I'll, I'll give you two different kind of options here. Here's option number one on what the reason could be and how the Bible kind of emphatically says, nope, that's not the reason. Well, God chooses the good people. He chooses the ones that he knows ahead of time are going to be good, faithful, effective Christians, sort of like uh, how you select fruit at the grocery store. It's like he, he looks over all of the apples of humanity and he leaves behind. He kind of doesn't pick the bruised and the bad pieces of fruit, the bad apples. Instead, he selects the shiny, juicy, plump people. You know what I'm saying? So that, that's, that's how he, he would do it, right? Well, uh, the Bible is pretty emphatically clear that is not how it works. If you look at a couple of different um, responses, if you look at Abraham, uh, the Bible talks about God choosing Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God initiates this relationship with him. Okay, so was Abraham a good guy? Was he a, a shiny, juicy, plump apple of a guy? Well, no. In Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 through 4, we get a description of what Abraham was like before he was called. And it refers to him as an idolater, someone that engaged in idolatry, worshiping other gods. That's no bueno. Uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 again and um, chapter 9. So in Deuteronomy 7 uh, verse 6, it says you're, you're a people that the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. And then verse 7, it says it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you're the fewest of all people. This is saying it's not because you were like strong and there's tons of y'all and y'all were this like awesome nation. You were actually like the fewest of all peoples. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4 through 6, reads this. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the Lord that the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. It says that, it says three different times. It's not because you're awesome. It's not because you're righteous. It's not because of anything in you. Their, their election is not due to any merit in them. Let's look at one more from Romans chapter 9. Verses 11 through 13 says this. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Paul is using this example from the book of Genesis. There's a woman named Rebecca. She was pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau. And Paul says, God chose one and not the other. This is verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And look again at verse 11. God didn't choose Jacob because he had done anything good. They weren't born yet. He, he didn't have the opportunity to do anything good yet. But here you have an interesting case study. You have twins, two people who kind of start out on the same level. You can't choose one over the other on any grounds in them. You can't choose uh, on the basis of family. Well, they're both from the same family. You can't choose one over on the basis of background. They have the same background. You can't choose one on the basis of ethnicity. They have the, the same ethnicity. They haven't done anything. They're, they all have the same clean slate, and yet God chose one and not the other, not due to any merit or goodness in them. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It says God called us not because of our works, but because of his eternal purpose, because of his grace. The point that is stressed over and over and over all throughout the Bible is this. God has chosen his people not on the basis of any quality or characteristic in them. Good works are the result, not the reason, of God's election. Enormously important distinction. But here's the second option of what the reason might be that I think the Bible says, no, not that. Um, some people have said, okay, God doesn't choose you on the basis of your goodness or any merit in you. I get that. But here's why God chooses you. I mean, think about it. God knows the future, right? And so it's like he looks down the corridor of time and he sees who is going to respond to him, who's going to believe in him. And those are the people that God chooses. Maybe you've heard this. It's a kind of a fairly popular explanation of some of these ideas, the idea is God chooses his people on the basis of their faith, the faith that God foresees because God can look into the future. But there are a couple of problems with that. Here's the first problem. If that is what the definition of election is, it makes election pretty redundant. I mean, why would you elect someone who believes in you anyway? Like, so what's the, what's the purpose of electing them? It, it ends up almost making the concept of election pointless. But the second problem is that this view makes faith or believing the basis upon which God elects people. And the Bible says over and over, there is no basis in you. Look at a couple passages here. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You have to notice the order of that verse. It's, it's huge. 
all who were appointed for eternal life believed. It doesn't say all who, were, all who believed were appointed for eternal life. The appointment, the choosing, the election, that is the basis behind why they believed. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Here's another one. John 10, verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Again, pay attention to the order. He says, you don't believe because you, you aren't my sheep. He doesn't say, you aren't my sheep because you don't believe. The reason behind why you don't believe is because you're not among my sheep. You're not among my elect. Romans 9, verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The whole, con the whole, the whole uh, context of Romans chapter 9 is Paul is talking about election. And Paul is saying God's election does not depend on man's will or their effort, their exertion, but it, it depends entirely on God. So you see, faith is not the grounds of your election. Faith is the evidence of it. Here is the question. Do you owe your faith to your election or do you owe your election to your faith? Reformed theologians, Calvinists would answer the question this way. We owe our faith to our election. So you see what the Bible is saying, right? The reason for your election is not grounded in anything that you are or do or will do. There is no basis in you for your election. So, okay, that's what the reason is not, but the question is still on the table. What's the reason? What's the reason behind unconditional election? I'll give you a couple different passages. Exodus 33, 19. And he said... I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is saying it is my divine prerogative to have mercy on whom I want. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll be gracious on whom I will be gracious. Matthew 20, verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? This is a quote out of one of Jesus' parables, but again, you see this idea of God's divine prerogative. The reason behind why he elects some and not others, the reason is located within God, not within us. Ephesians 1, verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. All it says is predestination and election is done according to his will. Now, again, that doesn't really tell you what the exact reason is, I know, but it continues to reinforce this idea. Election is not based in you, but in him. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. We've looked at this verse a number of times already today, but it's a, it's a big one. Here's what it says. I'll just read it again. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Okay, it's a very important verse, but I want to just kind of look at it a little bit more slowly. Verse 7 begins with the negative reason for why the Lord does not set his love on you. And again, it says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. So that verse tells you what the reason is not, right? The Lord doesn't love you. The Lord doesn't love the people of Israel because they were numerous. They were this big, awesome juggernaut nation. But what's the positive reason for why the Lord loves them? Look at how the sentence concludes in verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you. Okay, what? Is God speaking in circles here? Because he just said God loves you because he loves you. God loves his people because he loves his people. God chooses his people because he chooses them. Now you might think, okay, that's really weird. That doesn't make any sense. But if you think about it, that is the most helpful, liberating, good news that you could think of. Uh, I'm really indebted to Ed Clowney, who helped kind of make this aspect of God's love come alive for me. But, but he kind of sets up this thought experiment and he says, think about it like this. Imagine you're sitting at home with your child and you're hanging out on the couch with your son, and you just feel the urge to tell him, Son, I love you. And then he looks up at you and asks, Why, Dad? What if you said, I love you, son, because you're the fastest player on the soccer team? Or what if you said, I love you because you are at the top of your class? Like, What's wrong with that? I mean, you provided a reason, right? You did what he asked. But the thing that is so devastating about that response is that you just centralized your love for your child into some behavioral characteristic of theirs. And now your son has the unbearable pressure to sustain his performance in athletics or in academics, lest he lose the approval and affection of his parents. The whole identity of his parents' love for that kid is now based on what the kid does. And so it's, it's, actually, it's actually damaging, it's devastating to, to provide a reason if the reason is located in, in something in them for why you love them. The most liberating, freeing, security-generating reason you could provide is to say, I love you because I love you. I love you because of something in me. I have chosen to love you. So that's what the reason is behind unconditional election. It is God's divine prerogative to whom he wants to be gracious to, to whom he wants to have mercy upon. And he loves those whom he loves because he loves them. So what's the result of unconditional election? And, and I'll be quick here, but the, the question is, for what purpose does God elect us? 
you could say it's to salvation, sure. Yeah, that's obvious. But is there is there any other point behind why God would elect people? Well, look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I referenced it earlier. I'll just go ahead and read it real quick. It says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God comes to Abraham and he chooses him to be his. He chooses Abraham and consequently the whole people of Israel after him. And it is for the purpose of blessing the nations. Blessing that can sound so, it's a word that can just sound so incredibly broad and vague. Hashtag blessed. But it means that God has a massive global universal redemptive agenda. And he intends to use his chosen people to bring that purpose about. In fact, this theme is threaded all throughout the book of Genesis. If you look at Genesis 18, 18 and 22, 18 and 26, 4 and 28.14, it's all about this idea, you have been chosen to be an agent of redemptive blessing to the world around you. So when you hear of Calvinists or Reformed people referred to as the, quote, frozen chosen, you know, people that aren't interested in evangelism or church planting or social justice, I think this shows you that these Calvinists don't understand the point of election. God chooses people, yes, I think that's clear in the Bible, but he chooses them to become instruments of bringing about his kingdom. God never draws you in without also sending you out on mission. Here's a great quote from um, a book called The Mission of God that reads this. The recipients of the Abrahamic blessing become the agents of it. The Abrahamic promise is a self-replicating gene. Those who receive it are immediately transformed into those whose privilege and mission it is to pass it on to others. I love that imagery of, of the gospel being like the self-replicating gene. When you receive the grace of God, when you receive Jesus... It, you become transformed into now being someone who is on mission to pass it on to others. So that is unconditional election in a nutshell of sorts. And I know, again, that everything that I just threw at you brings up a truckload of questions. This seems unfair. What if someone wants to believe in God, but God won't let them because they weren't on this elect VIP list? Uh, what do we do with all the places in the Bible where God says that he doesn't will that anyone should perish? What do we do with all that? And trust me, like I said at the beginning, I, I get it. I get it. So uh, next time we are going to put unconditional election on trial and respond to a number of these questions. But until then, 
Stay classy, San Diego.